Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, we'll talk tax and its impact on the lives of taxpayers and tax professionals. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. According to the Small Business Administration, there are 28.8 million small businesses in the United States. Small businesses, defined as businesses with fewer than 500 employees, account for 99.7% of all business in the United States. As a small business owner, I can attest that there are a lot of great things about running your own show, but there are some difficult bits too. Statistically, about two-thirds of businesses survive two years in business. Half of all businesses will survive only five years, and one-third will survive 10 years. And of those that fail, the majority cite cash flow as a key factor. Another critical stressor, and one that we're seeing a lot of right now, is economic uncertainty. That kind of financial stress, plus working long hours, and often blurring the boundaries between working and family life, can take a toll on business owners. That's something that I'm hearing about more and more from business owners now, and this sense of being overwhelmed, especially now that we're in the midst of the pandemic. It's something that we need to talk about, I think, a little more, and it's something that I wanted to address on the show. So I asked our next guest, Nicole Lewis-Kieber, on to talk about it. Nicole is a business therapist and mindset coach who works with entrepreneurs to create and nurture healthy relationships with their businesses. She's a licensed clinical social worker with a master's in social work and previous experience working as a therapist. She's certified in Brene Brown's The Daring Way and Dare to Lead methodologies. And today, she focuses on breaking the stigma of mental health and business ownership. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Nicole, I know that um, folks don't like to talk about money because it feels taboo, but it's something that small business owners need to talk about more or it can become an albatross. So how do we get those conversations started? Normalizing that it is uncomfortable for us and you know, letting that be a starting point, I think, gives people a little bit of room to breathe to know that they're not alone in it. But one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to talk about money is that we have been socialized and conditioned not to do so. Right. And in order to do so, we have to break a lot of rules and, you know, step over some lines and uh, kind of do a little bit of trailblazing around how you want to relate to your money, talk about it and, you know, share information about it with other people. And we don't have a lot of really good models for that. And why do you think it's taboo? I know we talked about this a little bit on social, on tax Twitter. One of the reasons I think that it's taboo is that because we equate importance with money. So we kind of come up with this narrative that if you have lots of money, it must mean that you've done something right or that you're important. And if you don't have a lot of money, it must mean the opposite when those things are not always true, of course. But what kind of what other reasons make it taboo? Well, I mean, that's such a good point. We've been taught to condition to see that money equals value and it shows the value of who we are as a human being, (laughs) which is not fair at all. I think some of the reasons that's taboo is we grow up in different types of families around what money means. I grew up in a pretty traditional, you know, conservative Southern Baptist family. And the conditioning that I had and the messages I had around money were that if you had it, you gave it away. The goal wasn't to be wealthy or to have all the things. It was to be of service 
to the greater good. And so there was a little bit of stigma around what it meant to have money and what it meant not to have money. And so we internalized those messages when we're kids about what it means to have it and what it means about other people who have it. I'm going to date myself. But I, I grew up in a family where my, my pap watched uh, you know, Young and the Restless and he loved his stories, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in a family, you know, where you had this Southern Baptist conservative version about what money means. And then I was watching these daytime dramas with him where you had Victor Newman and all these people who had all this wealth and they were just nasty, nasty people. And so these patterns of conditioning and what we kind of download as kids about what it means to have money and not have money really does play out in how we see the ability to talk about it. And money becomes so loaded around your value, your worth, whether you're worthy or not, whether you did the right thing. It's a fallacy, basically. Right. And, and I know a lot of this is certainly true in my own life. I actually grew up very aware that we didn't have a whole lot. I didn't know it in the beginning because I felt like we were the same as everybody else. But my mom made a lot of my clothes. I was a pageant girl when I was little. And I remember being backstage in a dress that my mom had made for me, which I loved. It was Kelly Green, which I was sure was named after me. And it was beautiful. And this girl came over and asked me where I got my dress. And I said, my mom made it. And she looked horrified. And she said, um, well, you can't win a pageant without a store-bought dress, which my husband always jokes is going to be the name of my um, autobiography one day. But yes, please. I remember thinking at that moment. It was one of the first times that anyone had pointed out to me that I wasn't allowed to be successful because I didn't have nice things. It was a right. very like, and because before then, nobody had ever said, you know, oh, but Kelly, if your mom made your top today, then that means that you can't go to college. Like, I never had that moment where I felt less than really until someone pointed it out to me. So I, I completely I agree that so much of what we feel about money is just internalized from the way that other people treat us, whether we have it or not. Yeah. And how are we supposed to move through that information in any other way than as a, con you know, as children, we're very much concrete thinkers and we internalize and feel responsible, right. you know, for things. So how else are you supposed to look at that? So it really does create those patterns and thoughts and beliefs around money and who has it, who, ha who doesn't. And, you know, I've worked with a ton of people who had a lot of money growing up and yet the guilt was still there because they saw other people who didn't. And so they felt embarrassed about what they had and people who felt embarrassed about what they didn't have. You know, so money, whether you had it or not, really does play into how you see yourself and the world around you and what people think about you. Right. And, and as it relates to business, I know that because I didn't have a lot growing up, I grew up super frugal. Like I, I was so worried to spend money because I didn't want to end up in a situation where I didn't have things. So I know that there were times that I was far too frugal with my business. Like I didn't mm -hmm. spend money on my business when I should have. I didn't invest early on in maybe technologies or coaching or other guidance that I should have invested in mm -hmm. because I was worried to let the money go because once it was gone, what did that say about me? And I also remember very much when, um, so we lived in the city when we started our business and we didn't have a car. And we at some point needed a car once we had the kids. And my husband, when we went to look at cars, I wanted like the cheapest car that we could get <laughs> that would pass inspection. And my husband's like, you have to remember that people are going to look at that. And that's how they view us in our business. And it was true. Like people really did. If you drove, and I noticed this about in other businesses as well, the, the, the business owner that drives 
the the car that's falling apart, you wonder like, what does it say about their success? And I hate that I even think that way because I know better because, you know, I work with people in their finances all day long. So it really is interesting how it also can impact your business and the decisions that you make when you're older. Exactly. And we have to make those assumptions, right? Because we are conditioned to do so. It's how people roll. We make these assumptions because we very rarely get very specific and clear about what our dollar signs really are. Right. So we have to make these, you know, we have to jump to these conclusions because people don't share their data. So how do we learn to have a healthy relationship with money? Like, is there a way to do that? Or is it just something we have to kind of struggle with when we get older and figure it out? Like, is there a way to learn to have a healthy relationship with money? Yeah, there's so many ways. I mean, you know, it would be great if when we're growing up, the people, our caregivers and the people who, you know, influence us had a a healthier relationship with their own money so that they could share non-biased ways of thinking about it with us. But that's probably not going to be the case for a while. So what we can do on the outset is if we have kids, have very clear conversations with them about money. You know, try and keep loaded emotions away from it and keep it to the facts as much as possible, allow them to begin to develop their own relationship with currency. And so, you know, that's one of the ways that we can do it. But you and I are in a certain generation where that probably didn't happen much. So we had to make a lot of <laughs> assumptions all, about right? it. Not at all. <laughs> I can't even remember, you know, my my parents ever showing me anything about their finances other than the arguments they had about it. So on the outset of it as adults and particularly as business owners is to be very honest and look back and at, you know, the experiences that we had and the messages that we downloaded as kids to say, okay, what is my relationship with money? What was I taught to believe about it, about who had it, who didn't, what judgments are there? What is the story of my family around money about, you know, this? So you can begin to unravel it a bit and decide what paradigm shift do you need to make in order for you to have your own story about your money personally and in your business that works for you and that is easier for you to direct as opposed to kind of defaulting into those thoughts, feelings, and behaviors around it. They're kind of mindless. You know, we kind of have to deprogram ourselves a bit and decide to have a new paradigm. I love that idea of, you know, learning to to have your own story around money, because I do think that, especially when we get older, one of of the things that I'm learning more and more is that we do control the narrative a lot more than we think. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of this subjective and information that we've been told over time contributes to that story. But I, you know, there there comes a time when we can make definite changes. And I've seen that like with taxes. So for example, I have clients that will come in and they will have a tax problem. And the reason they've had the tax problem is because in year one, something didn't work the way it should have. Either they didn't make the payments they were supposed to, they they had a terrific year in the beginning or not at the end, like something happened and they ended up with a liability. And rather than address the liability, they thought, I'll fix it next year. And then next year came and it didn't get fixed. And because they didn't fix it the first year, they kind of get into this mindset of, well, if I didn't fix it last year, what good does it do to fix it now? Because it's still out there. So now we have two years of problems and it kind of builds. And it's something that I try to tell my taxpayers all the time. Like, even if you can't pay, file. Like there are things that you can do, like steps that you can take forward to kind of change what has gone on in the past. 
mm-hmm. and and work towards fixing it. And I I think that that's the terrific the way you talk about shifting paradigms because it is a learned behavior. It's something oh, that you yeah. have to say like I'm going to fix this and I'm going to seek help or you know maybe maybe it's a situation that that people feel like they can fix on their own. But I just need to start doing it and stop burying it because I do think that that's where the problems, especially like on the tax and the financial side, happen. Is that when you when you reach the point where you've let someone else control the narrative, you've let society say that if you have a tax debt, that means you are somehow a bad person. You know, we do. It's funny. Um, you know, when people talk about tax debts, they, they talk about them sometimes in very negative ways. And some municipalities and states even publish lists of mm-hmm. tax delinquents. And I hate mm-hmm. that word because it makes it sound like you've done a bad thing. And while I don't want to suggest that people always do the right thing, because mm-hmm. I have some yeah. of those for clients too. Like I'm not suggesting everyone that has a tax debt was really trying to do the right thing, but a lot of them were. And it's just so hard to control that narrative. So like, what are those steps that you take? Like, how do you build that confidence to say, you know what, these, this is not the story that I want to keep telling. I want to change it. And this is how I'm going to fix things. It's an unlayering. I'm all about self-compassion, compassion and accountability. I really am because so much of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors as adults are you know, really created by these kind of default mindsets and beliefs that we grew up with. And when you think about a parentified agency within the government, could it be more the IRS or no? It couldn't, right? <laughs> yeah, no, people are terrified. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So when we think about, oh, I did something wrong or I made a mistake. Am I going to hide it or am I going to come forward, put a spotlight on myself and say, you know, help me fix this? Right. When we grow up in systems and, you know, we have these parents and authority figures around us where we get in trouble when we do things wrong. And then there's this shame spiral and you don't want to put the spotlight on yourself. This is a replication of that pattern of behavior when it comes down to I don't want to get in front of the IRS. I'm afraid I you know, have the shame about this decision I made. So I'm just going to try and hide it. Right. And so when we can look at that and just say, wow, this is, I was kind of conditioned to think this way about the IRS. And, you know, we have been conditioned to look at people who made a mistake around their taxes as bad people, like it's a moral failing as opposed to I made a mistake Mm -hmm. and I can repair that. But again, we are not taught overall. I mean, there are people who do this, but overall in family systems and you know, school systems and systems around us, we are not taught the beautiful, beautiful process of rupture and repair. We are only taught rupture and you're in trouble, right? Right. Yeah. There's no repair process. And so if this is what your clients are doing, they're really reenacting, you know, societal patterns, family patterns, these beliefs of your good or your bad in relationship to your money, which is Mm -hmm. so unfortunate. Um, yeah, so no, we have to have self-compassion for, around that you are kind of defaulting in these behaviors, get curious, and then begin to decide for yourself what you want to do around your money and how you're going to look at it moving forward. And it affects other parts of folks' lives because when they get into especially financial trouble, they try to hide it in other ways. And mm-hmm. they also retreat. I have, I joke about this quite a bit, but I have clients who will bring me literally Samsonites full of unopened mail from the IRS because they're so nervous because they've made this mistake Mm -hmm. and they don't know how to fix it. And sometimes, and this is actually a true story. I had a client who had not filed for several years, brought me stacks and stacks of mail for me to go through because he could not emotionally bring himself to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And there were refund checks in those stacks of mail. Oh, wow. He did withholding. He was an employee. He just didn't file. So yeah, he did the wrong thing, but he could have fixed it. And for, for a few years, the IRS was trying to fix it for him because sometimes they will file for you. It's interesting because when you do worry so much about doing the wrong thing that sometimes you, you miss out on the good stuff too. Uh, such a profound example of how when we hide and we don't step into kind of ownership and agency over our relationship with our money that, you know, that we are literally cutting off flow of money coming to us and right. the opportunities, you know, to have a relationship with it that's solid and feels secure because we're hiding from it. So this person literally had money in their mailbox that, yeah, they, exactly. that they could not receive because of this shame around their money. So how do you break that though? And so this, in this, I will say to this client's credit, realized there was a problem, sought out a professional, started taking steps to become compliant. And I do know that in other areas of this person's life, it turned out to be a wonderful thing because there became a confidence that crept in. Like once. Once he wasn't worried about the IRS, he started opening his mail from other people. He started paying his bills on time because he wasn't worried about the bigger bills. So it actually sort of became, it was a life changer, which is, is funny because we don't think about resolving tax debt in that way. How does one take a first step? Like, do you, like you mm. mentioned, you know, you have to shine a light on it. I think a lot of folks who are listening are probably thinking, well, I am shining a light on it and that I know I've done something wrong. But how do I get to a point where I'm okay with learning how to do something right or learning how to fix this or feeling better about myself so that I can make better choices? Because I know you mentioned it was unlayering, but it's hard when something is a process for people to take a first step. Being a numbers person, I like for things to be broken into pieces. Like what would be that first piece to kind of get to a place where where you're comfortable The first piece will be to know you're probably not going to be comfortable and being okay with that. Okay. Because the example that you gave is is a pretty beautiful example in that when you fix one thing that feels problematic or it feels like a problem, um, it is going to have a ripple effect into the other areas of your life because we are not compartmentalized human beings. If we have a challenge with our relationship around money, we probably have it playing out somewhere else. Right. Um, and so when we fix one thing, we see there's an opportunity for it to spread out beautifully in the rest of our life. So I think that knowledge to know that it's not just this one thing I'm fixing, that there's um, an opportunity for me to have relief in other areas. But the very first step is just recognizing that, first of all, there's this unmanageable part of my life, recognizing I've tried to deal with myself either to fix it or to ignore it, and it's not going away. And to allow yourself to get help, to know that, first of all, you can't do this yourself. You shouldn't really have to. This Mm -hmm. is not your area of expertise and that it is okay to ask for help, which is, again, something we are not taught to do very well. So it is recognition. It is that contemplation of what can I do next and taking that first step to reach out to someone. And if there's one person that you trust in your life, maybe that you have seen, has made some, what looks like solid choices around money. You know, who is your accountant? You know, starting to ask people that you trust for some of those referrals on how to begin to take those steps to fix whatever that thing is for you. And this, the flip side of this is at, you know, as your listeners, whatever capacity they are in business or finance or taxes is how can we be a safe place for that person who's coming to us with this shame? You know, how can we be a professional that 
is kind and calm and open? How can we show that to people so they can get a glimpse of us and know that we might be that person to be able to help them? Exactly. So it really is recognizing the problem and taking a risk to fix it for yourself. And that's hard. It's hard. Oh, absolutely. I love that you brought up referrals because one of the things that I often remind my my readers is that it's it's sort of funny to me that so before this this recording began I mentioned to you Nicole that I haven't had a haircut in a while because of the pandemic but the place that I go to get my hair cut was a referral someone suggested that I try this salon and I really like it and my daughter goes there now because I like it and I thought she would like it as well we are very quick to make referrals for things like places to get our hair cut and where we can find really good bananas, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't, we're not as quick to say, hey, I have this great tax attorney. I have this great accountant. I have this great business coach. I have like, when we talk about money, we, we clam up. We don't mm-hmm. say like, I've noticed on Facebook, people would be like, I'm looking for a credit union. What do you guys recommend? And you don't get as many answers to that as what is your favorite opening movie line? Because I do still think that people don't want to talk about it. And referrals are such a great way to um, to resolve issues because, you, as you mentioned, when you look at people who either feel confident or look confident to you or they have the same kinds of values maybe mm-hmm. that you share, you know, those are the people you should be asking, who is your accountant? Who, who do you deal with? Because, first of all, I think there's some worries about privacy, which just to kind of assuage listeners, when you go to see an accountant or an enrolled agent or an attorney or a business coach or a psychologist or any professional, they're not going to say, oh, that's right. I've seen your neighbor, Bob, and let me tell Mm -hmm. you about him. Like, that's not how that works. No, There's confidentiality. So I do think that, you know, people are hesitant to ask about referrals, but I think it's such a great way to find working relationships that you feel comfortable with because you can't you can't find you can't understand what someone is going to be like by finding them you know on google no and you feel more alone in that decision right if i google somebody uh, a tax attorney or accountant or you know someone to help me you know build wealth or whatever it may be if i google someone i can make a guess that they might be okay but i'm Mm going to go into that relationship into that call cold, right? Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's going to feel much more scary than if I ask my circle and say, you know, thinking about maybe doing this or, you know, even I know a client who needs this, you know, like it's for my friend, right? Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to get that warm referral, I think makes it a little bit less scary and we're more likely to follow through than if we're just Googling it. Let's say you, you get this referral and um, for whatever moment it is that you either, you need help with planning you need some business coaching, you have a tax debt, like whatever the thing is that you need help on, you know, how do you start having the conversation inside that relationship? Because I know that, you know, it's part of my job, for example, as a tax attorney to try to figure out (laughs) what it is that you need to do. But a lot of times, you know, as the the client or the the person carrying the the burden, you know what it is that you need. Mm-hmm. You just need to be able to articulate that because I can't always guess. Like I try to ask the right questions, right? But you can't always guess. Like how how does a person kind of open up and say, okay, here is my dilemma? Because nobody wants to walk in. I mean, I have a few clients that do this, but nobody wants to walk into you and say, listen, you know, I had the IRS one hundred fifty thousand dollars. What do I do? 
I mean, that's not typically how these conversations start. Usually somebody will say, well, I made a mistake last year. I forgot to file. And then eventually we're able to elicit that it's actually been five years that you haven't filed and you have a debt for 150000 Like it's pulling out of a person. Like what kind of advice would you give to someone about the ways to make, have those conversations? Because again, the professional knows what they're supposed to do, but as the, the client, how do they broach these really uncomfortable subjects? I think there's a couple of things. If you got yourself through the door, yeah, I would love for you to celebrate the fact that you made the call, you made the appointment and they actually right. go to the appointment. <laughs> so celebrating your win that you yeah. did that. And then, you know, like the self-coaching, you know, and self-coaching moment of, you know, I made the call, I'm here, I'm paying this person. What can I do to be as honest as possible so they can help me? Mm-hmm. being as honest as we can. But one thing that you can say, and this was, you know, again, when I was a therapist for 18 years, you have people come in and sit on the couch and look at you and expect you to be psychic, you know, like, well, right. I, I thought you were supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to do. Well, I don't know who you are. You got to tell me what the problem is because it's so hard for us to articulate and put ourselves out there. So I would say, if you find yourself in that situation and you're asking for help and you got yourself through the door, simply say with as much honesty as possible, this is where I am at mm-hmm. and that is where I want to be. Gotcha. Right. And let them start to ask questions to help to fill in the gaps of what do we need to do to get there or how did we get here? Right. Just being as clear as you can about this is, you know, this is where I'm at. That's where I want to be. How do I and, do that? And sharing the story, because one of the things I tell my tax folks all the time is, you know, sometimes these are just numbers issues. Like there are certain times when it's all about the numbers, but there are other times when we're talking about penalty abatements, settlement offers. There's a lot of times where the narrative matters, what's happened to you matters. Mm -hmm. And I try to tell clients this because I've had, I had this one gentleman, they had a a considerable tax issue where some steps weren't taken that should have been taken. And every time when I would talk to him and his wife, they seemed so together and I couldn't figure out why they had this problem. And I would say, and I'm trying to write the, the appeal to, to the service and I'm going through and going through. And then finally I'm like, what else is there? And the wife says, well, he did have brain surgery. And she tells me that there's a shunt that's in his, his brain. Mm -hmm. And we go through this a little more. And I said to him, I'm like, why didn't you tell me this? Like in the beginning? And he said, I didn't want to make excuses. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is not an excuse. Like, this is a real thing that happened to you. And it will significantly affect the way the IRS looks at this because a lot of these are people that are listening. Mm -hmm. This is not a, it's not a faceless agency. These are people and they want to know, why did you do this? Was there a reason? Did you have reasonable cause? Like, why did you do this? And I said, I'm pretty certain that having brain surgery is reasonable cause for doing (laughs) things the way that this, this worked out. And you know what? The, The entire matter was resolved within a couple of weeks. It was, it went really quickly after that. And And I tell people all the time, like, I think people have to understand the difference between an excuse and an explanation. And Mm -hmm. I think so many times we default to if something it's bad, it's we have to come up with an excuse. But sometimes the explanation is enough. Like, like, how do you get people to get to the explanation part? Adept questioning as the professional, but also speaking to the person who's walking through the door, you know, I would appeal to anyone who's listening that's in this position to allow the professional to help you. You're there to receive the help. So allow it. So if you find yourself in resistance around, you know, some inner voice that's saying, 
don't tell them you did that, or that's just an excuse. Don't tell them, you know, like whatever negative voice you have in your head that creates resistance to help letting this professional help you, you know, see what you can do to allow that voice to take a back seat for a minute Mm -hmm. and allow yourself to receive the help. Because we are taught that you should know how to do this. You shouldn't make a mistake. We should be perfect. We should never need help. Like all of these really gnarly, disempowering ways that, um, you know, we've been conditioned to be keeps us from being able to ask for help, be honest, get a solution without it bringing so much shame and blame up. Mm-hmm. If you're about to walk into you know someone's office to let them help you, it's remind yourself that that resistance is going to come up because that voice is going to try and shut you down. And to be as kind to yourself as you can and as honest as you can with the professionals so that they can help you because you're there for a reason. Mm-hmm. So allow yourself to get the relief. Right. So now I'm going to ask you like the impossible question, which is that <laughs> if we have been conditioned to think this way mm-hmm. um, and we've talked about how we need to make the switch in our own personal lives, how do we break that cycle and the next generation? So, you know, I'm, I'm a mom of three. I try to be really open with my kids and I try to balance. I mean, they know I work with money for a living. I've done the things that they say you should do in terms of, you know, we've opened savings accounts and I make them, um, you know, be responsible for their money. And if they have a library fine, I used to literally make them go to the bank and physically withdraw the money and take it to the library so that they understood the the value of money because I think it's important. But I still find myself like cringing a little bit. We were looking at the cost of college and like some of these colleges are 70 or $80,000 a year. And I'm trying to walk that line as a parent between teaching my kids to have big dreams, but also to be practical and responsible. And so, because I know how I, that I grew up being conflicted about money, you know, and, and believing that it was, it was important to get it. So how do you teach kind of the next generation of folks how to have these more healthy relationships? Well, I think they're teaching us already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. They really are. Like I, I, you know, my experience is that they're much more open to have less conditions around a lot of stuff that we grew up with. Oh, that's true for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we need to redefine what success means, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Allowing for more of a personalized belief around what success is for me, as mm-hmm. opposed to what the world is telling me success is that I have to comply with. Right. So I think that's one thing redefining what worth means, you know, Mm -hmm. around money, because if the only way we can value ourselves is based upon our bank account, that's disempowering. And it's unfair because we are not all afforded the same opportunities. We are not all afforded the same safeties and security nets around us to help us build that, you know? So if we can dismantle that belief, then people can start to see the truth of, okay, my value does not equal a dollar sign. And that person's value doesn't either because we were not at the same starting out point. So I can decide what that looks like for me. Exactly. And also that it's not an equal playing field. And just normalizing those conversations around money early, early, early and watching our language around, you know, if we are being nasty and snarky about people who have more money than us, then that child is going to internalize, okay, so Um, I'm supposed to want to be successful and make more money, but if I do make a lot of money and God forbid more than my parents did, that puts me on the outside of my people and it puts me up for ridicule. Right. Right. And so we have to really kind of look at what is the language that we're using around 
our kids and really tap into, am I speaking from a scarcity standpoint? Am I speaking from a judgment standpoint? Or am I just, you know, laying out the facts as much as I can around this equals a dollar. You have a dollar. Do you want to spend it on this thing or not? Right. Right? Um, And I think that's what it takes to start to reprogram. But it's such a big, you know, we talk about money. There's very few things that we talk about less that we have more conflicted relationships with um, and lack of understanding more than money. So it's going to take some time to begin to dismantle this. And that's why those figures around the small business that you, you know, talked about at the beginning that Mm -hmm. so many people will start a business and um, they've never given much thought about their relationship with money. And we are not silos. We bring all of who we are into what we do. You know, Brene Brown says who we are is how we lead. Right. Well, that comes with us into our business and it plays out in pretty profound ways about how we are successful in our business and what that means. And so, yeah. I know that kind of got off the question, but that kind of circles back to a really important point was that when I was talking about, you know, statistically, and again, I'm a numbers person, statistically, I know that there are going to be businesses that are going to fail. Obviously, as a business owner, you hope you're not one of them. But I also think that there's the, you know, you talk about the way that we project and 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 believe uh, stories that that other people tell us. I also think that if we fail in our business, that it somehow runs into a kind of a reflection of who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly interesting, I think, in, in the time we're in right now, because so many people are struggling. I uh, tweeted, I had uh, three friends that lost their job last week, those jobs. And, and I know small businesses that are closing. And it's really interesting because we do, I think, especially in our country, kind of push this narrative that if you're the small business that survive, it's because you've done something right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's true. I don't want to discount hard work. And I'm a small business owner. I work really, really hard. I get it. But sometimes there are things like pandemics and natural disasters and other things that interfere with your ability to do business that sometimes just make it impossible. If you're a restaurant that cannot serve food, you are not going to survive. That yeah. isn't a reflection on who you are. And I do think that's a really interesting Kind of moment that we're in right now because there are a lot of judgments that are being made and and actually to to the point when we were talking about earlier about stigma and and um, kind of shaming people one of the things that's been going on quite a bit is PPP loan shaming um, mm-hmm. it's something that I've talked about on the program before but this idea that small businesses that have taken out loans to keep their businesses going during the pandemic are somehow bad people. Right, that if you take out a loan, it means that you couldn't handle it or you couldn't hack it. And I, and I do think it's weird how we equate your ability to be successful with like how tough you are. Right. So I, I think that's that it's it's kind of interesting. Just generally, you know, to your point about about having to change the the narrative on that is just you know how do we measure success and and how do we congratulate and reward success and does it always look the same and we know that it doesn't. No. And it's such an interesting thing about, you know, we're, we have been taught to think on binaries, right? Is this or is that? Right. Right. And that's really not how the world operates. And so we've been taught like either if you fail, then it's a pro- it's problematic and it's personal mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, that experiment did not work and right. we learned this from it. And so we're going to jump back in, right? We're not taught that it's a moral failing. It's a personal shame as opposed to that particular thing did not work out, but it doesn't mean that I'm a bad business owner or that right. I don't know what I'm doing. It just means that that one thing 
didn't really work out for us. And so I think the more that we can disrupt that either or binary thinking that it can be a yes and situation, mm-hmm. the better off we'll be. But honestly, I had a, um, a business owner I was talking to a couple of weeks ago that said, yeah, my business is going to fail. And I'm okay with it because for the first time in my life, I feel like it's not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, pandemic, wasn't my fault, you know, they were perfectly relieved by that fact because there's so much pressure around it. And I just thought that was really funny that they were just completely fine with it. Yeah. I wish we were all more in that line of thinking because I do think that, again, there's just, there's a lot of shaming and a lot of, because you do, especially small business owners. I mean, you, you know this too, like, if you stay up all night working on a presentation and, and you put in the hours and you, and you put in so much of your own, you know, sweat and money into something, that thing kind of represents and becomes you. Like mm-hmm. people assume my law firm, for example, that is me. It has my name on it. If the law firm goes under, you know, how is that a reflection on me? And I think that we've been taught that that means that we're just, we failed. And, mm-hmm. and failing is not something that we're good at in this country or good at um, talking about in this country. You know, we, we, failure is, is bad, right? You mm-hmm. don't want to be last. And we've learned that as kids too. You know, you, I talk to my kids about this all the time about, you know, sometimes failing is just doing the thing. And it reminds me of um, um, a story my mom taught me, uh, told me when I ran my first race. I really probably wasn't in the shape to run that first race that I thought that I was and I panicked about it the night before. And I saw the numbers. It was the Rothman. You may remember the mm-hmm. Rothman. And um, I think there were like 30,000 people running that race or something. It was an enormous amount of people. And it's in Philadelphia. And I panicked and I called my mom in the night and I said, you know, mom, like, I'm so scared. Like, what if I finished last? What if I'm the last one? Like, people will make fun of me. And my mom said, she knows, she knew a couple of my friends in Philly. And she said, is so-and-so running? And I said, no. And she said, is so-and-so running? And I said, no. And she said, then you're already ahead of them. And I'm like, that's so awesome, mom. Because <laughs> I do think that we, we measure success in such weird ways that sometimes, you know, as you mentioned, just walking through the door is a, it's a win. Like making yeah. the decision to to be a business owner is a win. Like you're mm-hmm. putting yourself out there. So I think we, you know, there's a lot to be said for reframing the discussion. It really is. And, and deciding what works for you. You know, we've been conditioned to have these finish line moments, these, right. you know, report card moments, these graduation moments. Like it's so ingrained in every little thing we do about how we are valued as human beings in these you know systems and structures around us. So you, it really requires us to begin to look at like, how do I want to be seen, you know, what do I value and what is my, what do I see as my success? And I teach my clients all the time, you are not your business. It is something mm-hmm. you are in a relationship with. And so you can define that relationship right, and make choices and changes around it, but it does not reflect your value, you know, or your worth as a human being. It takes a little bit of time to get there because that's not what we're taught. And so self-compassion goes a long way when it comes to these topics. Agreed. I'm going to put up a list on the show notes um, of resources that might be helpful. If you had to kind of point out a couple of places that you could tell um, listeners, like if you're in a position where you're more interested in learning, like how to have conversations about money, how to learn self-compassion, like where would you send them? It depends on you know how open to spiritual work you are, worth, value. Money can, you know, be very much equated to how we see ourselves as beings on this planet, right? So it can be very, money and worth can 
be in a spiritual connection too. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I will send you a list of books that um, people can read if they want to tap into their relationship with money and kind of, you know, what paradigms they grew up with so they can begin to disrupt that for themselves and figure out how they want to move forward. My wish and desire is that anyone who does this work is to know that you are in good company, that these are um, systems of behavior and thought around money and value that we have been taught and that we, most of us, whether you had money, didn't have money growing up, have these things playing out for us in our personal finance, our business, the way that we see ourselves. And it is okay to begin to do this work because it doesn't say anything about you. We're, we're all doing it. Right. Awesome. So if our listeners are looking for more information about you, where can they find you? I think the best place for people to find me is, um, you know, my website's nicole.lewis-keeber.com. I'm on LinkedIn as well for Nicole Lewis Keeper Coaching. Um, I also have a profile on Medium where I write articles about the um, impact of childhood trauma on entrepreneurship and small business ownership. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at TaxGirl. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at TaxGirl.com. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be. 